Welcome to another episode of Facts. Today we're going to be taking this a little bit different direction. We're not going to be focusing on canon. We are going to talk about how it relates to canon, though, when we're dealing with the story of Jesus. When we're specifically going to look at his death, his burial, and his resurrection. There are those in academia who are publishing works, writing scripts that are stating that Jesus of Nazareth, who is described by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is nothing more but a resurgence of an already established story in that era, and that would be by the name Romulus. Now, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to actually do some comparative work, because to make this argument, whether you're talking about uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, who I've had the opportunity to debate, who believes that Jesus was more than likely a myth. Uh, in fact, we debated each other on the subject of the historicity of Jesus. You can feel free to find that on YouTube. It is uh, well-circulated, well-watched. Um, but he's not the only one that does this. In fact, Richard Miller's Mark's Empty Tomb and Other Translation Fables in Classic Antiquity, they post a table of content of Jesus versus Romulus. Like they'll put the biblical verses there. Then they'll put the Romulus sections from Dionysius or from Plutarch. And we're going to look at some of that or from Titus. Titus is another one. We're going to look at the comparative and say, you know what? Is this really stealing from the ancient myths? Can we actually look at this and go, okay, Jesus is a figure who the gospel writers embellished and, and and made out to be something that he more than he ever was, but actually they didn't know how to give him a heroic story without stealing from ancient Greek and Roman myths in order to publish accounts that people would actually follow and believe. Now the, the problem becomes dealing with the comparisons to make this argument from the beginning, you have to have an accumulative a massive amount of accumulative cherry picking. And what I mean by that is you got to take a statement here out of context. You got to go over to Plutarch, take a statement there, which isn't fully equal, but sounds similar. And then you got to go over to Titus over here and make a statement that he says, and you kind of cherry pick these statements out of these ancient antiquities and these writings. And then you accumulatively from cherry picking, are able to make an argument that, yeah, look at this. I mean, that sounds just like the Jesus story. But what, what people have to do is actually represent Dionysius and Plutarch and Titus and others with proper context and then do the same with the Gospels and then do the comparative work. So so let's let's actually take some of these comparative things and look at them. We'll start with Dionysius. Now, one of the things that he mentions here in the text is, and, and I'll read it to you because you can't see it. Those who give rather fabulous accounts of his life say that while he was uh, with his men in the camp, or this is Romulus, he was actually harsh and chewing them out, if you would. Sudden darkness rushed out of the clear sky and a violent storm burst after which he was nowhere to be seen 
these writers believe that he was caught up into heaven by his father, Mars. Now that's from uh, Dionysius and the Antiquity of Romulus 256-2. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. And here's why I don't like this chart. The first thing that they want to talk about is the missing body. There's a body missing here. Now, I want to actually go further than this because I don't like how we're just jumping into one section when there's actually a, a whole section here that is establishing context. Dionysius actually has context to this. Now, in 256, and then if you go to uh, through six, you'll find that the story goes this way. Now, he mentions that it's a fabulous account that happened, but number three, verse three. Those who write the more plausible accounts say that he was killed by his own people. Now, in the earlier accounts, he mentions that there are people that were there. He was chewing out his men. He was giving them a harsh, you know, rally cry, if you would. And then, boom, a storm hits. And in this storm, his body just disappears. And some writers believe that he was caught up into heaven. And he was taken to his father, Mars. But then Dionysius turns right around and says, but that's not really the most plausible account. Now, when I look at this story, I do not see a comparison of a resurrection. I say, well, the body is missing. Yeah, but this body is not comparative to a body who was killed and then resurrected from death. It was more of an ascension or a rapture or similar to an Elijah story. Now let's compare this with Plutarch. And I'm going to come back tonight, Dionysius. In Plutarch, he mentions a similar situation about Romulus. Now, in verse 3 of Plutarch, <clears throat> in chapter 27, Wherefore suspicion fell upon the body when he disappeared unaccountably for a short time after. He disappeared on the knowns of July, as they now call the month Quintilis, leaving no certain account nor even any generally accepted tradition of his death, aside from the date of it, which I just given. For on that day, many ceremonies are still performed, which bear the likeness to which then came to pass. Now, what he just did here is he established that Romulus died in July, but that there were multiple stories about Romulus that are still disputed. Now, in verse four, he says, nor need we wonder at this uncertainty since those Scipio Africanus died at home after dinner. There's no convincing proof of the manner of his end. Now, he's going to tell a story about Scipio Africanus and how there's debate about how he died, but there was no debate about his body. Like, they know he was buried. They know he took, like, there was no debate about Scipio's dead body. There was about how he died. Then he's going to use that as a comparative framework to Romulus. He says, Scipio's dead body lay exposed for all to see, and all who beheld it formed thereupon some suspicion and conjecture of what happened to it. Whereas Romulus disappeared suddenly and no portion of his body or fragment of his clothing 
remain to be seen. But some conjectured that the senators convened in the temple of Vulcan, fell upon him, slew him, cut his body into pieces, put each a portion into the fold of his robe and carried it away. Now I'm going to come back to that second part in a second to compare what we just learned earlier from Dionysius. What he is saying is that if you look at two people who died, Scipio Africanus, no agreement on how he died, but definite agreement on he died. There was evidence, witness of a dead body. Whereas with Romulus, he just disappeared suddenly. No portion of his body, no clothing was ever found. Just disappeared. And again, they're saying the same thing so far. Plutarch, Dionysius, that he disappeared. He was taken up to heaven. They're not saying he died and rose again. Yes, you have a disappeared body. But let's talk about some of these comparative things here. Like in Plutarch, he states that there was no body found nor clothing. According to the Gospel of John, when two of the disciples, being Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved, took off and ran to the tomb, they get to the tomb. The tomb is empty. They find no body. But they do find grave clothes folded. So again, when we start doing the comparative work, it's like, well, there's a body missing. Okay, a couple things. Jesus's body was killed and crucified on a cross. So far, we've learned that Romulus was not killed in the ascension or departure rapture story. It was a storm came. He was talking to his people. Bam, he's gone. Just disappeared. That's their word, disappeared. No body, no, no clothing, nothing can be found of him. Jesus actually physically died before his body went missing, and there were clothes found. There were grave clothes found. They were folded at the end of where he had laid. There's major conflicts. Another thing, he disappeared on the knowns of July which at that time was Quintilus. The timing of death is different. Jesus died on Passover. He was buried on the feast before the feast and in through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. These are spring feasts. You're talking March, April. The timing of the death is not comparable. Not only that, we have two statements from Plutarch, and we also have the statement from Dionysius, that these are not the only narratives about him. In fact, Dionysius says these are not the most probable. Now let's go back to Dionysius, because I read to you that Plutarch said that some would actually report that he, he was in the Temple Vulcan and the meeting with his senators they chopped him to pieces, took his body, hid it under their robes, and left. That's actually consistent with what we're going to find in Dionysius. Now, he says in, in that verse 3 section, but those who write the more plausible account say that he was killed by his own people, and the reason they allege for his murder is he released without the common consent, contrary to custom, the hostages he had taken now, listen, so let me give you a summary of this. 
So he took hostages, he freed them, but then he mistreated people of his own country. They saw him as a tyrant. So he mentions a group of Romans who were accused of basically they were accused of things. There was really never, ever mentioned any proof. So he actually harshly treated them, but he was nice to the hostages of prisoners of war. So the people of Rome didn't like him for, for the way he treated their own prisoners versus foreign prisoners. It says, but chiefly because he now seemed to be harsh and arbitrary to be exercising his power more like a tyrant than a king. For these reasons, they say, the patricians formed a conspiracy against him, resolved to slay him, having carried out the deed in the Senate house. They divided his body into several pieces that it might not be seen. And then they came out, each one hiding his part of his body under his robes and afterward bearing it in secret. All right, so let's let's pause here. The description of Romulus is that he's a tyrant. Harsh king. Jesus, the king of the Jews, was not ever in any of the Gospels described as a harsh tyrant. He was depicted as a servant king. He's depicted as one who left his throne, left his power, his rights, his authority, and became a servant to men, became obedient to death, the death of a cross. Their personalities are not even comparable. He went after the outcast, the lame, the maim. Their descriptions are not even comparable. Now, what is comparable up to this point is that a storm took place. Darkness happened. These are the things that can be compared. Now, the idea that a solar eclipse or some kind of natural circumstance happened is not unheard of. I mean, we can go through the entire Old Testament and find multiple places where it was dark for long periods of the day during the daytime under God's judgment or when God was judging or predictions like in Amos, it talks about how at midday in the brightest part of the day, there was going to be darkness, almost prophetic of what happened to Jesus. And Amos is written earlier than these accounts. So it's, oh, well, they, they, they stole that from you know, the story of Romulus. When we have biblical ancient Greek texts and Hebrew texts, meaning the Septuagint translating those Hebrew texts, like Amos, and the Hebrew texts themselves, stating that there's going to be darkness from midday. And then you go to the Jesus narrative, and he's on the cross, and darkness comes over the land while he's on the cross at midday, to assume that the biblical writers who are Jews, except for Luke, who reported the things of Jews, his interview was with the Jews. When you're talking about these biblical writers who have Jewish narrative about Jesus, a Jewish guy, it is more likely, or I'm going to use Dionysius's term, probable that he received this information from their Jewish scriptures than from Roman mythology. So even though there's darkness, that is a comparison that's that's accurate. And you could say, well, look, I mean, they're similar. They are. There's no doubt. But is it more likely that they receive that concept from Amos or from one of the prophets, especially Amos, 
who gives a vivid description about an hour of darkness that hits during the 12th, our 12th hour at their time, the sixth hour for the Jews, 12 o'clock, midday. Yeah. It's more probable that Jews writing a Jewish text got that from other Jewish texts than borrowing it from the story of Romulus. It's just a thought. But we need to go back to what Dionysius says. So Plutarch Dionysius both say that this story happened where senators met in the temple Vulcan, chopped them to pieces. Dionysius says that's the more plausible explanation. But he also goes on to tell us that they buried his body in secret, and that's why nobody knows where the body is. See, there's no conflict about what happened to the body of Jesus. There can be arguments from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that there are differences in narrative, and we're going to get into those at some point. And um, there seems to be so-called contradictions. Now, I'm going to say this, and I said this to my class the other day, my apologetics class, the high school group that I teach. All contradictions contain differences. But not all differences contain contradictions. And if you're listening to this, I want you to think about that. That's something that I've been thinking about for years. Every contradiction. Contradiction is opposing data. It's data that's against other data. They cannot harmonize. They cannot come together in agreement. A different is something that shows to be two things that are not the same. But two things that are not the same do not automatically mean that they contradict each other either. It just means they might be different. It could be a different perspective, a different thought process, a different angle, additional data versus lesser data. Like, for example, in this very story, Plutarch mentions that a, a journey and a council of senators met with Romulus in the temple, Vulcan. Dionysius mentions that the senators chopped him up. They agree that that would have happened, but Dionysius doesn't mention it was in the Vulcan temple. You see, there are differences there, but they're not contradicting each other. So all contradictions contain differences in them. But not all differences contain contradictions. And we're going to see that as we go through some of the Gospels. And, and we're going to touch on some of those things. We look at the possible contradictions that are being claimed on them. But when we're talking about these stories, Dionysus is saying the plausible explanation is chopped body, hid under the robes of garments of the, of the uh, senators. They go out, they bury it in secret. Plutarch saying the same thing. Now, when I talk about this, his body was buried in secret. Jesus' body was not buried in secret. His disciples knew where it was. The Jews and their leaders knew where it was. That's why they ran to the Roman leaders and said, look, his disciples are going to steal his body. You got to put guards there. So therefore, the guards, the Roman guards, the leaders knew where he was buried. The Jews knew where he was buried. 
His disciples knew where he was buried. He didn't have a secret burial. He didn't have a secret death. He was publicly crucified in front of everybody. And he didn't have this mysterious disappearance. He did rise from the dead, but then he appeared to his disciples and showed many proofs of his resurrection. He let people touch him. He ate dinner with them. He appeared to over 500 witnesses, Paul said. And individuals are part of the group. To say that these are compatible and comparable, when you go through the actual content, they're not so close. Just because a body disappears doesn't mean contextually we're talking about the same kind of data. Now, I want to go through this as well on the age. Verse 6 of Dionysus says, But that as it may, the incidents that occurred by the direction of heaven is connection with this man's conception and death would seem no small authority to give to those who make gods of mortal men place the souls of illustrious persons in heaven. For they say at the time when his mother was violated, whether by some man or by a god, there was a total eclipse of the sun, great darkness of the night covered the earth, and at his death the same thing happened. Such then is reported to have been the death of Romulus, who built Rome, was chosen by her citizens for her first king. He left no issue. After reigning 37 years, died in the 55th year of his age, for he was very young. He obtained the rule, being no more than 18 years old, as is agreed by all who have written his history. So what's not disputed about Romulus is the age of his death, his years as a king, and according to Plutarch, uh, the time of his death being in July. There's disputes about everything else. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John do not have disputes about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They don't have it. So going back to that, there is no dispute about his death. He was publicly crucified by the Romans at the wish of the Jews. He was buried and he rose again and appeared to his disciples. That is undisputed. That's There's no different, like, well, some say he was secretly buried by his disciples. Some say he rose from the dead. Some say he just disappeared altogether. Some say that's not what happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. couple other contradictions in this narrative he died at the age of 55 reigned 37 years jesus didn't even live that long jesus began his ministry about the age of 30 according to luke's gospel he lived and served another three years or so therefore he died around the age of 33 the age is incomparable then there's a statement about virgin birth comparisons it says that some say that his mother was violated whether by a god or by a man, meaning we don't know. <laughs> There's no dispute about whether Mary was impregnated by a miracle of conception that she, without the intimacy of a man, became pregnant. There is a dispute about that, about Romulus, not just the dispute, but we have major issues here. One, it says violated, meaning there was an intimate moment, almost indicating rape, possibly. It could have been by a man. Well, if it was by a man, then she was not producing a virgin birth because she would have been violated by a man. If she was violated by a god, then she's also not a virgin. She's still not a virgin. That means she would have been raped by one of the gods. And again, 
There are multiple stories in antiquity, including in Genesis 6, and including in Jewish literature like First Enoch, where divine beings had intercourse with women and produced unnatural, supernatural children. That's not new to Romulus. Genesis 6 teaches that. You can go back to my episode on First Enoch. I did a whole episode on this. That's not stolen from Roman mythology. There's stories about that in Jewish scripture, both canonical and non-canonical. The Watchers. But even then, those were not all of those angels that came down and had impregnated these women and took them for wives, etc. Genesis 6, 1 Enoch. Those weren't virgin-born children. They were violated by these gods, these fallen watchers. Therefore, this is not a virgin birth. It's not the same thing. And the idea of a virgin birth was prophesied long before Romulus and the Roman historians were writing this. Starting in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, the mystery of how a woman would produce seed within herself apart from man, when the man himself is the producer of the seed built upon and, and and really expounded upon by Isaiah in chapter 7. It expanded even greater through chapter 9, all the way to the end, proving that this young maiden would produce a child, but that it was a miraculous child by the end of it. It seems like it's talking about Ahaz's soon-to-be wife in chapter 7, but the fulfillment of that could not be her. Through her bloodline, yes, because came Hezekiah, who also seemed to emulate this king, but he could not be the king of Isaiah 9. He couldn't be him. He failed to be him. So through that bloodline, there was a greater fulfillment than that. So again, we have no way of, of, of confirming this to be, oh, that's the same. There's a virgin birth. There's a virgin birth. There's a resurrection. There's a resurrection. That's cherry picking the data. That's not actually going through these ancient texts, looking at their statements of uncertainty and certainty. There's no dispute about the age and the timing of the death of Romulus. There's much dispute about his body. There are major differences here. Though the bodies go missing, that is a similarity. The body was taken up to heaven to the Father. If the second narrative is true, Yes, they were both killed by their own people. Because one account says he wasn't killed by anybody. He was just taken up. He never died. And I'm going to talk about how that's more comparable to another situation. But that that is the similarity. And none of those things, going into the darkness side of it, the darkness is there, this solar eclipse. I just mentioned their stories about it in the Jewish scriptures long before these. But the differences are astounding. Romulus was taken to heaven without death. Jesus didn't go to his father immediately after the resurrection. In fact, in John chapter 20, he tells Mary Magdalene not to touch him because he had not yet ascended to his father. So he appeared to his followers, some of his followers, before he ever even ascended to the father. Matthew created a report of a stolen body by the disciples. These other accounts leave the potentiality of his body being chopped to pieces. So his followers took his dead body and hid it. 
so Matthew tells us that the Romans are like, hey, they, they're going to do that. So we got to put guards here. So they did. That's how it happened here. In Romulus, his senators chopped up his body, stuck it in their robes, had a secret burial, not a public burial. Plutarch reports no portion of his clothes were found. John reports Jesus' clothes were found folded where his body laid in John 20, verse 6 or 7. The difference of virgin birth, the difference of age. There's so many differences here that it's it's not even really comparable in the end. A body missing. <clears throat> now, another aspect. He's basically being called the son of God, indirectly. Son of Mars, his father. So the idea of the son of God, particularly used by John, has been stolen from these texts. Well, no. Again, let, let's talk about that. Couple things. The psalmist had already prophesied of the Son of God. There's references to this. This day he has begotten him, his son, the psalmist says. Daniel 7 talks about the idea of the son of God or the most high. We also have concepts of the son of God, not only in Daniel, not only in the psalmist, but even in Dead Sea Scroll writings. There's one called the son of God text, as they call it. It's around the second century BC. And in that length there, it says that he will be called great and be designated to his name and that he would be called the son of God and they will call him the son of the most high. Now there's a dispute as to what that actually means. Because some would say, well, that's going to be talking about Antiochus the, the fourth being Antiochus of Epiphanes mentioned and described by Daniel 7. But in this manuscript, 4Q246, the statement later being the kingdom will be an eternal kingdom in that next section of paragraph and all their paths will be righteous and they will judge would actually indicate this is not an evil king producing these things. Because it says God's rule will be an eternal rule and all the depths and then the manuscript cuts. So it seems like there's this son of God who will be called the son of the most high. He's the great. And in fact, Luke 1 32 borrows this terminology. It says of Jesus, he will be great. He will be the son of the most high. All same terms used in this manuscript. And he will be called in verse 35, of that same chapter, the son of God. Same words from that manuscript. Could it be that Luke got the terminology and John got the terminology from the already established psalmist, Daniel, and even the community of Qumran who were doing interpretive work about the Messiah, a Messiah figure, who he would be? Again, what's more probable, that they're taking this from Jewish scripture or from Roman antiquity mythologies? they being Jews and interviewing Jews, I would say are probably taking this from 
their own Jewish scriptures, the Psalms, Daniel, and even community of interpretations like the Qumran community. So just the idea that he was the son of God does not mean that they stole that from myths because there was already established statements of that in the Jewish scriptures and in Jewish interpretations. So again, oh yeah, there's similarities, but let's get into the similarities. Let's break down the similarities. Let's put the proper context to the similarities. Let's look at the timeline of the similarities. Are there other similarities comparable to the Jewish scriptures? And if so, what makes us think that this one is the right one and the Jewish scriptures are the wrong one? Let's talk about Titus Livius, the history of Rome, book one. Let's let's pull this into. The disappearance of Romulus happens here as well. It says, after these immortal achievements, that is the disappearance of Romulus, Romulus held a review of his army. So... Let me just back up. <clears throat> this is one of those things where, again, Dionysius and here Titus Livius agree. There was a review of his army, and Dionysius says it was actually pretty harsh during this camp gathering. Then it states, a violent thunderstorm suddenly arose and enveloped the king in so dense a cloud that he was quite invisible to the assembly. From that hour, Romulus was no longer seen on earth. So this is consistent with the first statement of Dionysius, who said this wasn't even the plausible explanation. But nonetheless, it is reported as such. He's he's going after these. He's, he is mad at his people, and he's apparently letting them all have it. And then, boom, thunderstorm happens, and then he disappears. Disappears. He's invisible to the assembly. Therefore, from that time on, he was never seen again. It says, when the fears of the Roman youth were allayed by the return of bright, calm sunshine after such fearful weather, they saw that the royal seat was vacant. While they fully believed the assertion of the senators who had been standing close to him, that he had been snatched away to heaven by a whirlwind, still... Like men suddenly bereaved, fear and grief kept them from such time speechless. So there's eyewitnesses. <clears throat> they're there and they're going, okay, um, all we can tell you is it got dark. We didn't know what happened. We were freaked out. And then once the calm sunshine came back out, we saw the seat of Romulus was empty. So we asked the senators since they were the closest to him. And the senators say that he was caught up and snatched away by a whirlwind. Okay. Again, no death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, he was taken to heaven. But this sounds more comparable to Elijah. He was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind and did not see death. Or Enoch, who's walking with God and... God took him, never seeing death. So if we actually want to do comparative work here, to me, this is a closer narrative to Elijah or an Enoch. He never saw death, more so to Elijah because he was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. That's not in the Jesus narrative. 
<clears throat> it says at length, after a few had taken the initiative, the whole of those present hailed Romulus as a god, the son of a god, the king and father of the city of Rome. Back to what I mentioned about the son of God terminology. Again, not comparable. Yes, he was called a son of a god. That was very common in pagan practices, yes. But the Jews had already established that terminology before this writing and before those times, before Romulus existed. What he believed here is that they deified him after this disappearance. Nobody knows where he is. Now, what Titus doesn't do is get into the details that Dionysius and Plutarch get into. That is what happened to his body burial-wise, secret burial. But notice verse 4 here. I believe, however, that even then there were some who secretly hinted that he had been torn limb from limb by the senators. A tradition to this effect, though certainly a dim one, has filtered down to us. The other, which I follow, has been the prevailing one. Do no doubt to the administration felt that the man and the apprehensions excited by his disappearance, this generally accepted belief was strengthened by one man's clever device. The tradition runs that Julius, a man whose authority had weight in matters of even gravest importance, seeing how deeply the community felt the loss of the king and how incensed they were against the senators, came forth into the assembly and said, at break of day to, of dawn today, the father of this city suddenly descended from heaven and appeared to me. Whilst thrived with awe, I stood wrapped before him in deepest reverence, praying that I might be pardoned for gazing upon him. Go, said he, tell the Romans that it, it is the will of heaven that my Rome should be the head of the world. Let them henceforth cultivate the arts of war. Let them know assuredly, hand down the knowledge to posterity, that no human might can withstand the arms of Rome. It is marvelous what credit was given to this man's story and how the grief of the people in the army was soothed by the belief that he had been created in the immortality of Romulus. So there's this kind of post-resurrection statement of go, tell the Romans. But the message is completely different than Jesus go in all the nations. This is make Rome the power of all things. The disciples wanted Jesus to say that about Jerusalem and Judea and Israel and restore the kingdom of God to Israel. Jesus tells them to do the opposite. No, go into all nations, start in Jerusalem, <clears throat> work from there to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Tell all nations. And it was not a message of don't let anybody withstand the arms of Rome or the arms of Israel. It's the walls have been torn. Go and tell the gospel to the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the father, son, and spirit. That's what message was given by Jesus. But here there's again disputes about what happened. And it seems that the most consistent story is the senators chopped him up and buried him in secret. But even if he was, let's just say mythology is right here. I don't think it is. I agree with Dionysius, the plausible explanation. He's chopped to pieces. That's probably what happened. There's no 
death, then resurrection. Just immortality by being taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. That's an Elijah story, not a Jesus story. An Elijah story was longer written and farther back written than the Romulus story. So are we going to say that? Well, <laughs> the Romans stole that from Jewish scripture. Uh, what they did to Romulus is stealing Elijah because taken to heaven by a whirlwind, that's similar. See, you don't do history that way, folks. You don't do history that way. It shouldn't be done that way. No, I don't think the Romans stole that from Elijah. But just because it's similar doesn't make it the same. So just because something's a contradiction doesn't make it... Just because something's a contradiction and it contains differences in it, yes, that's true. But not all differences are contradictions. Yes, that's true too, as I stated earlier. But just because similar is around doesn't mean similar the same. Similar is not always the same. This story is relatable to the Elijah story, but I don't think the Romans stole it from the Elijah story. I, the cherry picking of content to make comparable claims is a bad one. It's a really bad one. There are similarities, but there's not sameness. And we're going through the context. We're not just listing them side by side and not doing the context of both. When I look at these stories, I begin to see major issues, major comparisons that do not add up. Romulus never resurrected from the dead, even in the deified version of the story, which his own historians are saying, <clears throat> not, not the most plausible, probably. Secret burials, all of these things. The only true comparisons is in solar eclipse. But again, the Jews outdo that one. <clears throat> the idea that the mother had a special child by the gods, which was not certain either. Whereas Luke and Matthew had no dispute about whether or not the Holy Spirit brought life into the womb of a woman without the intimacy of a man or a God, for that matter. Where they are consistent, these narratives are inconsistent. There's no definite conclusion. So when we talk about the Jesus myth, this constant statement that Jesus was from a myth, his story was written by his followers who borrowed from myth. Folks, I think that we need to do our due diligence in this. <clears throat> and mark my words, because this episode is going to be marked by a date. There is a new push, a new rise, a new defense in the skeptic, in the atheistic, in the anti-Christian scriptures movement to push this narrative. This argument is only begun. Hear me. If you're listening to this, you're a follower of Jesus. You better start reading Plutarch. You need to start reading Titus. You need to start reading Julius Caesar. You need to start reading Dionysius. Folks, I'm telling you, this is a new fight that's coming into the academic debate. And it's not going away anytime soon. 
there's fringe scholars on the skeptic, secular, anti-Christian movement who are posting video after video, debate after debate, blog after blog, and now the scholastic world is publishing documents and books on it. Not just the fringe. This started popularizing the fringe movement. Now it's in academia. Are you ready for this? Do you have an answer for this? I hope you do. And I hope that this episode, because again, we keep these under an hour, is here to help you. It is here to help you start your journey of understanding why did the gospel writers produce what they produced? Where did they produce it from? Who are they producing it to? Did they borrow from other texts? Well, of course they did. But did they steal these narratives from ancient mythology of Greco-Roman Empire? To me, this one is petty. To me, this one's not even, you got to cherry pick the data to create a narrative and cherry pick out of context data and not allow for the older text, the Jewish text, to answer some of these claims too. This is just an intro. I'm introducing you to an argument. I'm not saying this is the whole argument. I'm saying I have begun to introduce a concept that most Christians need to be aware of. And I'm making my audience aware of it. Do the homework, do the comparative work, do the research. I know that in our group at Explore Christianity, John Beasley is actually doing some in-depth work on this. I've begun to do some stuff and comparative work for him to add to his research. So we're going to be answering this. We're not going away when it comes to discussing this. I have sat down in two of my classes now with my high schoolers that I'm teaching apologetics to, and we've already begun the, uh, the, the process of, of comparative work. And I've got 11th and 12th graders who are writing out on the side things that are the same and things that are different. And they get it. They see this isn't really great argumentation. So with all of this, when we talk about the Gospels, we have to remember one thing. All contradictions contain differences, but not all differences contain contradictions. And another thing we need to keep in mind as we study is similar does not always mean the same. When you do comparative work, similar does not always mean the same. And we have to guard ourselves from these two ditches that we can fall into and seriously get hurt. I hope that this starts something for you, a new study, a new thought, that you're ready when you start hearing this stuff, or your kids get educated with it, your grandkids get educated with it. You know what you're talking about. I trust the Lord will use this episode to start and help you in a new way of thinking and defense of the faith as the continual attacks come toward us. Grace and peace to you. God bless. Have a good day.